Blessed Holy Spirit, you are the teacher of your people. We ask that you would come and teach. Instruct us, Lord. Help us to see your truth, that we can put it into practice. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us victory over complaining and arguing, that you'd make us blameless and innocent, above reproach children of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Complaining and arguing seem to be two different sins that Christians tolerate the most. I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but it seems like we almost wonder if they're sins or not. There's really no question whether complaining is sin, because in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10, Paul writes, Let us not grumble, which is another way of describing complaining. Let us not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And he's referring back to the book of Numbers where 14,700 Israelites were destroyed by God because they grumbled against Moses and Aaron and ultimately they were grumbling against God. So we learned from that that God hates grumbling. He hates complaining. He hates it so much that he destroyed four, over 14,000 people because they were grumbling. So we should not take the sin of complaining as a light thing, like it doesn't really matter, it's no big deal. To God, it's a big deal. And the, the words in our text are grumbling and disputing. I'm going to use different synonyms for those words throughout the sermon today. For grumbling, I'm going to choose the word complaining. For disputing, I'm going to choose the word arguing, because those are really what Paul's talking about. He's saying, do all things without complaining or arguing. And what we, know, what we see as we work through the book of Philippians is that starting in chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through chapter 2, verse 13, Paul is talking about personal sanctification. He's talking about Christians growing in grace, growing in godliness, but it has a specific reference to it. He's talking about them growing in their sanctification in terms of their relationship to other believers in the church. We know that because if you go back to 127 and look at the words he uses, he talks about, well, we'll just take chapter 2, verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So if you boiled all that down, what's he talking about? What does he want the Philippian believers to do? He wants them to be united. He wants them to experience spiritual unity together. He uses words like same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then he shows the greatest enemies to unity in the church are selfishness and pride. And so he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, which is another way of describing pride. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's the secret to unity in any church is to kill the selfishness in your heart and kill the pride that rises up in your heart that wants to be number one and instead be willing to take the low place and serve other people. If every Christian were to do that, we'd have such a wonderfully united church, wouldn't we? It'd be like heaven on earth, every local church. And then to even enforce this principle further, he says, I want you to look at the example of Jesus Christ. And he starts showing us Jesus in his selfless humility, starting in verse 6. And he shows that Jesus existed in the highest, most, the highest place conceivable. He existed in the form of God, but didn't re regard equality with God, a thing that he had to grasp onto, but instead emptied himself. What does he mean by that? Well, he describes it. He took the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of men. So God was made in the likeness of a man. That's great condescension, isn't it? He's descending the ladder from the highest place on the ladder all the way to the lowest place on the ladder. And then he was found in appearance as a man and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And at that point, he's got to the bottom of the ladder. There's no further low that he can go than that place. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, look at Jesus. There's your perfect model of selfless humility. That's who you should be striving to emulate. Him, your Lord. And then before I leave this whole subject, I just want to show you how God responded to his selfless humility. For this reason also God highly exalted him. 
He found him at the lowest possible place in death, the death of the cross, and he started lifting him up. He exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then in verses 12 and 13, he again comes back to this idea of personal holiness. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but also now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And last week we talked about the two different aspects of sanctification. And for those of you who are new to the Christian faith, sanctification means to become like Jesus. It's a process of being transformed from a life of sin, your old wicked ways, those start to go away, and you start to adopt holy ways. You start to become more like Jesus. So he says that the real essence of sanctification is obedience. He says, you, you've always obeyed. You once obeyed in my presence when I was right there with you. And I was planting the church and people were coming to Christ and we, we lived together. Well, I'm not with you anymore. I'm in Rome, 800 miles away, a seven-week journey away from you. I'm in Rome, but now work out your salvation by continuing to obey even though I'm not there with you physically. So, verse 12 tells us that man's role in sanctification is to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. If I told you that are married, work out your, ma your marriage. You wouldn't dream that I was telling you, go and get married. Right? Paul is not telling them to work for their salvation. They already were saved. They already had salvation. He's telling them to work it out to its ultimate conclusion where they become like Christ. Grow in grace. Grow in holiness. So our part in sanctification is to work out our salvation. That is a command given straight to us and we can't shirk it. And we can't say, well, I, nothing I can do about that. I'll just let go and let God do it all. No, there is a responsibility we have as Christians to work out our salvation. But there's also another side, and that's verse 13. The reason why we can work out our salvation is because God is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The Almighty Creator God of the universe lives in Christians, and He's working in Christians. That's why Paul says in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So God doesn't just start a work in somebody and then go away and say, well, I'll meet you at the judgment seat. I hope you do okay. I hope you make it. No, he continues to work in them day after day after day, perfecting them and sanctifying them, purging sin, producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That brings us to verse 14. And Paul is going to tell us how we work out our salvation. What attitude do we work out our salvation with? And so he says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, in verse 14, we have the command. The command is do all things without grumbling and disputing. And then we have the reason for the command in verses 15 and 16. And he gives us three reasons. Do it for your sake. Do it for the sake of the world, and do it for the sake of your spiritual leaders. Do it for your own sake, the sake of the lost out there in the world that are watching you, and do it for the sake of those who lead you. So let's take a look first of all this morning at the command itself. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. How many things? He says all. Not most or some. Or, if you get around to it, try to do most things without grumbling or disputing. The command is that we are not to complain and we are not to argue. Just like worry. Worrying is sin because it, it doubts God's provision. Complaining is a sin because it casts doubt on God's goodness and His providential wisdom to watch over and care for us. So we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
which means it's never okay to complain and it's never okay to argue. And we'll define both of those terms in just a minute. Now, when Paul says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, he might mean two different things. He might mean do all things without grumbling against God and disputing against God. Or he might be saying do all things without grumbling against each other and disputing with each other. And there's reasons that you can come up with for both of those interpretations. Let's take the position that he's talking about grumbling against God and disputing against God. Paul would have a good precedent for, for, uh, for writing in that particular way because he's very familiar with the history of the Israelites in the Old Testament. And theirs was a history of grumbling. Those of you who've read the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, don't you remember all the times, the 40 years as they're going through the wilderness, where they just grumbled and grumbled and grumbled? Let's go back and take a look a little bit about that. So you recall in the book of Exodus how they were slaves in the land of Egypt, right? And God came through Moses and told Pharaoh, let my people go that they might serve me. And God brought one miraculous plague after another. And the tenth one was that he sent the destroying angel through the land who struck down and killed the firstborn of every family who did not have the blood over their door. Well, that was the ultimate, and that set God's people free. So they, they left Egypt. Pharaoh and his armies raced and chased after them to destroy them, God opened up the Red Sea and the children of Israel went through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then when Pharaoh's armies went through that same opened area in the Red Sea, God closed the great walls of water down upon them and drowned the armies of Egypt. And you would think, wow, that is absolutely amazing. I bet the Israelites will never doubt God again. Right? How could they possibly doubt God's power and care for them after that? Well, the very next thing that happens after this is Exodus 15, 23 and 24. It says, they came to Marah and they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? So they're complaining. Lord, we know that you saved us out of Egypt, but we don't have any water to drink. What are you doing? Lord, take care of us out here. You know, they're grumbling and complaining. Well, the Lord was gracious, and he told Moses to cast a tree into the water. Would you think, well, why, how is a tree going to change anything? But, but God used this tree that Moses cast into the water, and it sweetened the waters, and they were able to drink them. And so God took care of them. The very next chapter, turn the page. Exodus 16, look at verse 2. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then pass down to verse 8. Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Think about that the next time you complain about somebody else. You might think that you're complaining against that person, but your complainings are ultimately against the Lord. And the Lord heard their grumblings. It wasn't like God was off on some distant trip and wasn't in tune. God heard every single grumbling that they were making. And the Lord acts against them. Very next chapter, chapter 17, look at verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Sound familiar? They've already gone through this one time. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses. Now that word quarreled, I think that is parallel to the word disputing in Philippians 2.14. They quarreled, they disputed 
with Moses. Ultimately, they were disputing with God because it's God's providence that had led them to this place where they didn't have water. So the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You, you can tell they don't have a lot of trust in God, do they? Whenever a trial comes or a test of faith, instead of facing that test of faith with confidence in God, they grumble and complain and doubt and worry and again, God provides for them. God shows them a rock, and he tells Moses to take the rod and to strike the rock, and out from that rock comes this great river of water that feeds this great multitude, probably two million people. So God, again and again and again, took care of his people through the wilderness, but that didn't stop them from grumbling. You find them grumbling at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings, and you find them grumbling at the end of their wilderness wanderings in Numbers chapter 16. So 40 years of grumbling. Therefore, when Paul writes in Philippians 2, do nothing from grumbling or disputing, I think he probably did have in the back of his mind the story of the Israelites and how they had grumbled over and over and how God had taken offense to that and had actually slaughtered 14,700 people because of it. So again, it's no light thing for Christians to grumble and complain. God doesn't think that's no big deal. It's a big deal. See, what they were doing is they were casting doubt to the goodness of God by grumbling. They were showing to the surrounding nations that they didn't trust God's love and care for them. You can't really trust God to take care of you. God may not be good. He may not be wise. He may not really know what he's doing. They were demonstrating that God wasn't really worthy of their trust. And that's why the Lord would take offense. And so, taken in this light, when Paul talks about do all things without disputing, Perhaps what he has in mind is do all things without disputing against God, arguing with God. Have you ever argued with God before? The Lord has allowed some trial or tribulation or heartache or thing that you didn't like. And you, Lord, why are you doing this? Lord, if you're a good and loving God, you shouldn't be doing this in my life. That's disputing with God. And... The Word of God says, do all things without arguing and disputing. Don't accuse God. Don't slander God. Don't blame God. God cannot do evil, and He's not doing evil in your life when He allows trials. He's perfecting you. He's doing something that's good for you, even though it hurts. So don't dispute and don't grumble. So I've showed you how we can understand this verse, verse 14, in relationship to God which I think is valid. We are to do all things without grumbling against God and disputing with God of the things He allows in our life. But there's also another way that we can look at that. Do all things without <clears throat> grumbling against other people, especially people in the church, and disputing with other people in the church. And the reason I say that's probably a better understanding of this verse is because the whole context from chapter 1 verse 27 all the way through here has been dealing with peace and unity in the body the whole thing and so it would make perfect sense for him at this point to say don't do that which is going to upset the unity of the church which is to complain and grumble against each other don't do that which is going to destroy the peace and unity of the church which is to dispute with each other over stupid little things Complaining and arguing would be the very thing that would disturb the unity and peace. In 1 Peter 4.9, Peter writes, Be hospitable to one another without complaint, without complaining against others. It would be easy if you were being hospitable and you invited someone to stay at your house because they needed a place to live. And so you say, I've got, I've got an extra bedroom. You can live here for a while. And you start complaining because you say they're not doing their fair share of the work around here. They're leaving messes for me to clean up. You know, it'd be easy to start 
feeling resentment towards somebody that you're trying to be hospitable towards. Peter says, be hospitable without complaint. James 5.9 says, do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the true judge is standing right at the door. So think of, think of God, the true judge. He's standing on the other side of this door, and he's listening to all of the complaints going on within his church on the other side of the door. He's eavesdropping. Do not complain against one another, brethren, so that you may not be judged. Did you know that your complaining against other believers is going to receive judgment from God? I'm not talking about eternal judgment. You're not going to go to hell because of it if you're a believer, because God's sins are forgiven. But there is a sense in which those will be judged on judgment day. God takes them seriously. He says, do all things without disputing. Now, some people would say, you see, we should never debate with one another over the correct meaning of Scripture. Because it says, do all things without disputing. And I don't think that's what Paul had in mind here. I think he's talking about sinful disputing. Sinful disputing is when you argue with someone just because you want to prove that you're right and they're wrong and you're superior and they're inferior. And so you're going to argue to your death <laughs> because you're never going to give in. That's a proud, arrogant, sinful arguing and disputing. That's wrong, and we should do all things without that kind of disputing. But if we said that we are never supposed to have a healthy dialogue and debate about the meaning of God's Word, where would the church be? In 325 AD, you had the first council of Nicaea, and you had Arius, and Athanasius having this great debate over the identity of who Jesus Christ is. And Arius said, he said the same thing that Jehovah's Witnesses say today. They said he is an angel. He was the first and greatest creation of God. That was Arius's position. And in fact, if you go down and look at history, he had a lot of followers. Sometimes even more people believed in his view than people that believed that Jesus was God. Interesting. It's crazy. But there was this great debate going on between Arius and Athanasius. And Athanasius said, no, Jesus is the Word made flesh, God of very God. Where would the church be today if we had no disputing over things that truly mattered? The church would have to accept anybody's view of anything, and we'd have this hodgepodge of error and truth all mixed together, and no way to separate one from the other. So healthy debates are good for the church. Now, how do we know the difference between sinful disputing and healthy disputing. I think it comes down to the motive of the heart. You can dispute to the glory of God, not for your own sake, to exalt yourself, or to promote your own prideful position. You can actually dispute when God's glory is on the line and do it for His sake. And I think then it's holy disputing, not sinful disputing. So there we have the command, verse 14. Do all things without complaining or sinful arguing with each other. To exalt your own self, to promote your own prideful position. Don't do that at all. And then he says, here are three reasons why. Verse 15 and 16. And he begins verse 15 with, so that. So now we know he's giving us the reasons why we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And here they come. Number one, for the sake of the Christian, for the sake of your own soul, do this. He says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. We'll stop right at that point. Blameless, innocent, children of God above reproach. He says, don't complain and don't argue because that will prove something. That's going to prove that you are a blameless and innocent and above reproach child of God. You're going to give evidence that you are the real deal, that you are a true Christian because your life is so much different than everybody else around you that you rub shoulders with. You're going to stand out. Let's look at the words he uses. Blameless. 
innocent. Very similar words, aren't they? It's hard to even tell one from the other. A blameless person, you can't attach blame to them. Innocent, they haven't done something wrong. Above reproach, that word means without blemish. And it was used of animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament that had no spot or blemish. If they did have a spot or blemish, you couldn't offer them as a sacrifice. So these were animals that were untainted with anything that would defile them or contaminate them. So what Paul is getting at is that we are to live lives of moral purity. Of course, he doesn't expect absolute perfection because that came in only one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he expects us to pursue perfection in the Christian life. Be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's our goal. That's our standard. That's what we're shooting for, is to be like Christ in all things. And so he wants us to live the kind of life that would properly represent God. He wants us to live a holy life so that our life is believable. When people look at your life, they believe that what you say about God is actually true because they can see an alignment between how you live and what you say. Blameless, innocent, above reproach. And so Paul's point here is that we are to live a life without complaint for our own sake because it proves that I'm a child of God. And not just a sinful child of God, but a blameless, innocent, above reproach child of God, which is the goal, right? A life of contentment and joyful trust in God is a beautiful thing. A life of complaining means that you're not living a life of contentment. If you're content, you wouldn't be complaining. If we can find our contentment in Christ and in God's provision for us, that's going to go a long way to erasing this complaining spirit that we tend to have. Because we, fight, we have all we need in Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. It models the character of God to other people. And it gives assurance to the Christian that he is a child of God. Did you notice that? It's one of the ways that you can gain assurance of salvation. If, you, if your life looks just like everybody else in the world... Why should you even be sure that you're a believer? His point is that if you don't complain and don't argue, that proves that you're a blameless, innocent child of God. If you want to have a sense of assurance of salvation, pursue this kind of life. That's Paul's point. So the first reason not to complain or argue is for your own sake. It's going to benefit you to live that kind of life. Secondly, for the sake of a lost world. Because he says here in verse 15, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the, faith, the word of life. And I'll stop right there at the word life. Let's read it again. We are to prove ourselves blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Where? in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Now let's break that down. The first reason that Paul gave for not complaining is for our own sake. The second reason is for the sake of the lost. That we would have an impact on a lost world around us. And so here, I believe Paul is talking about the evangelistic mandate that he has given to the church, that we are to seek the salvation of the lost around us. And what's interesting is that he points to your life as one of the ways you're going to have a direct impact on lost people. There's two things that are necessary if you're going to have an impact on lost people, your life and your lips. They're both necessary. A holy life and a gospel witness. Now take, take just one of those. Let's say you just lived an absolutely holy life, but you never opened up your mouth and said anything to anybody about Jesus Christ and His gospel. Very minimal impact. But let's say you're always talking about Jesus, but your life just violated everything you're talking about. You didn't even look like Jesus. You look just like the world. That's going to minimize any impact you're going to have for the lost, right? We need to hold both of those together. 
Don't, don't just all go out there and start talking about Jesus if you're going to be living the same kind of life they are. Stealing and cheating and lying and committing fornication and all the other sins of the world. Don't do it. Live a holy life and then open up your mouth and start talking about Jesus. Notice he says in verse 15, in the midst of. Where are we to live out this holy life? In the midst, in the middle of this crooked and perverse generation. That tells me that it's never God's intention that we would go off and live inside of some holy monastery separated from the rest of the world. We're to live this holy life in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. We're not to go live in some kind of a holy huddle where you never associate with anybody but Christians. Like I've got a Christian veterinarian and a Christian doctor and a Christian dentist and I go to Christian stores and I buy Christian music and I only talk to Christians my whole life. That's not God's will. <laughs> he wants you interacting on a daily basis with lost people. You're living in the middle of them. You're supposed to be living in the middle of them. How else can you have an impact if you're not living in the middle, showing God's light through you to them? I think that's one of the mistakes that the Amish people have made. God bless them. They have... Their community is self-sustaining. They don't need the rest of the world. They can produce all the food that they need, and they can make their own clothes. And, and so they do. By and large, they have cloistered themselves off, and they don't inter interact with the rest of the world. Well, this, this verse is telling us, no, no, no. You live in the midst of them. That's good. It's good that you live in the midst of them. In fact, Jesus said in John 17, 15, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So the, the Lord didn't want us to be, to escape from the world, even though sometimes we would like that, wouldn't we? Be a lot more pleasant if we didn't have to deal with all the sin and the gunk and the garbage of the world. But there's a reason God has us here. Think of yourself as salt. If you're always in the salt shaker, it's not going to do any good for anybody, right? You've got to get out of the salt shaker onto the piece of meat in order to preserve that thing or to, to give salt and flavor to that food. Get out of the salt shaker. But we like to be in the salt shaker because it's nice and cozy and we feel protected and ah, I'm not being tainted and defiled by all these sins around me. I'm, I'm with all these other pieces of salt. This is great in this salt shaker. You've got to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. <laughs> Christian communes, same thing. There was a time when Debbie and I were uh, really in kind of infatuated maybe with the idea of Christian community. And so we intentionally moved into a house with other Christians and we were, thought we're going to live out Acts chapter 2 where they had all things in common. And we tried that. We did it for about two years. <laughs> and then we decided we wanted to live by ourselves. <laughs> But we can, I, you know, we can, we can do that. We can say, all right, let's just live together. We won't have to interact with the world. It's not the will of God for you. God wants you to have an impact on other people. And if you totally withdraw, there's no impact. Now, if you've just come to Jesus Christ, there might be a period of time. It might be wisdom for you to, for a period of time, withdraw from those people that are doing drugs, using profanity, fornicating into gangs, all the, all the evil of this world, if you're not strong enough to be with them and not participate in those sins, you may need to withdraw for a while. Amen. So just want to encourage you in that respect. Now, he says in the midst of what? A crooked and perverse generation. Jesus said in Luke 9.41, You unbelieving and perverted generation. Crooked. That word crooked refers to something that is deviated from the standard. If the standard is a straight line, crooked is that which is deviated from the will of God. Now what is the standard of God? It's His law. God has given us His law as a straight line. And the world is crooked. They don't conform to the standard of God. And the word perverse is even a stronger word than crooked. Right? We use the word pervert. It's a form of perverse. What do we mean when we talk about someone who's a pervert? We mean someone whose 
sexual behavior is unacceptable and bizarre. They're a pervert. That's a strong word. And God says the generation we live in is crooked and it's perverted. Do you guys need any proof that we live in a crooked and perverted generation? I mean, we just look around, turn on the news, go outside, talk to people. It's very obvious. We're looking, living in a crooked and perverted generation. We live in a generation in which we've been conditioned to think that cross-dressing, drag queens, same-sex marriage, sex reassignment surgeries are normal. It's crooked and perverted. We live in a generation in which everybody's shacking up and living together and we think that's normal. That's crooked and perverted. We live in a generation where we think it's normal for a pregnant mother to kill her unborn child. That's crooked and that's perverted. We live in a generation where lying, stealing, and cheating just go on unchecked around us. They're rampant. And we think, well, that's just normal. We live in a generation, well, actually not a current generation, but then generations in the past, in the 18th and 19th centuries here in our own country, in which whites enslaved blacks. And at that time, they thought that was normal. They were conditioned to think that that was okay. In the 1930s and 1940s in Germany, the people were conditioned to think that it was okay to persecute and exterminate a whole race of people because they happened to be Jewish. Here in America, in the 1800s, the 17 and 1800s, it was also thought to be normal for the Europeans who were coming over from across the, the Atlantic to drive Native Americans off their land, and if they didn't want to go, to kill them. They thought that was normal. That's crooked and that's perverted. That's not according to God's holy law where we love other people as we love ourselves. It's, it's wrong. The world doesn't see it. It's because the world's looking at each other instead of looking at God's straight line. Now, if you and I decide that we're not going to live by the crooked and perverse nature of the world, but in fact we are going to live according to God's standard, His law. What's going to happen? Look at our text. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. We used to live in Sonora, and up there they didn't have any street lights. It was pitch, you could go outside, it was pitch black, but if you looked up in the sky, the stars were so bright. It's much different than living in a place where there's so many people like Sacramento. It, they're just bright. They filled up the night sky. And that's what he's saying. The church is like the moon and the stars that, that shine forth this brilliant light in the midst of this incredible darkness of this present perverted and crooked world that we live in. Now, you will only stand out if you're different from the world. If you try to blend in with the world and adopt their moral values and say, yeah, same-sex marriage is fine, homosexuality is fine, abortion's fine, yeah, we agree, no problem, everything's okay, well then you're not going to stand out. You're not going to be like lights shining in a dark world. But if you take a whole different approach and you say, no, my standard is not what the world thinks, I'm not going to be conformed to this world, but I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I'm going to look at the Word of God, and I'm going to find out what God's will is, and I'm going to live my life according to that. You're going to stand out like a sore thumb, because you're going to be so different from the rest of the people in this world. And that's exactly what God wants. He, he put us in the middle of this rotten world because he wants us to affect change in it. He wants us to have an impact on it. And so we will never have an impact if we're just like them. That's why he's encouraging us to live a holy life. So brothers and sisters, when you're in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, just ask yourself, am I crooked and perverse myself? Or am I conforming to a straight line? Do you complain and argue all the time, just like people on your job or people in your neighborhood or people you rub shoulders with? Are you different than them when it comes to complaining and arguing? 
Do you argue about your boss or your wages or drivers in traffic or how your meal was prepared? Too hot or too cold or too spicy or not spicy enough or the weather? It's rainy, it's cloudy, I don't like the weather. Or your spouse or your children. And we could make a list and just keep saying it, couldn't we? You know what people have found out? People, the more affluent a culture becomes, the more complaining they are. And isn't that crazy? But it's the opposite of what we would have thought, but it's exactly what happens. Go to a third world country where people are making $2 a day on average and find out how much they're complaining about not getting the right seat at the restaurant they wanted or the food wasn't delivered to them within 15 minutes. You know, it's cr they, they don't have even anything to compare it to. But because we are so used to getting what we want, when we want it here in America, because we're affluent, it, this, this culture of complaining has just been bred over and over. And it doesn't help that we have places like Amazon who can get you something within 24 hours on your doorstep. And now everybody wants something instantly when they say they want it, right? So here, here is the... Here's the clue to overcoming a complaining spirit. Learn to be content. Contentment is a beautiful thing. Are you really content? And if you're not, the answer is not looking for your circumstances to find contentment. It's looking to Christ to find your contentment. He will never let you down or fail you or fail to provide what you need. The Lord will be sufficient. So we need to refuse to jump on the present bandwagon. America has been going through a moral revolution for about 50 to 60 years. Our morals have been completely changing. I mean, all of you know that. We need to refuse to jump on that bandwagon and stand out and say, no, my, my standards for morality don't come from the world around me. They come from God. A transformed life is the greatest advertisement for the gospel. I like that. A transformed life is the greatest advertisement for the gospel. Do not diminish how you live in your evangelism. Don't, don't say that's not important. It's very, very important. What you are is as important as what you say. And so we need to focus on both. Now, he goes on to say in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. The Greek word for holding fast can have one of two meanings. It can mean hold on to it and don't let it go, which is what it sounds like in the New American Standard. But it can also mean holding forth, meaning offering the word of life. And I think that's probably a better way to interpret it here because it fits the surrounding context that we are lights in the middle of a dark, corrupt, perverse generation so if he's speaking to the evangelistic mandate of the church, holding forth the word of life would make more sense in its present context. Now what's the word of life? It's the gospel. It's the word that gives life. All people are born dead in trespasses and sins. They don't have life. The gospel is what can bring life to people dead in sin. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So we are to hold forth or to offer this gospel while we're in the midst of this corrupt, perverse generation living in its midst, living a holy life. We are to speak forth the gospel and hold out the offer of salvation to people everywhere. That's probably the, the point at which we fail too often, wouldn't you think? I think we're all concerned about living the kind of life God wants us to, but we stumble and fall badly many times when it comes to having the boldness to speak up for Christ when we ought to speak up. This is an area we need to pray that God would give us more boldness and courage to say what he wants us to say when he wants us to say it. So this comes down to us sharing Christ with neighbors that we get to know, people you work with, people you go to school with, the checker at the grocery store, 
I mean, wherever you happen to be in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, hold forth the word of life. It is their only hope. Yesterday when we were out sharing the gospel, it just occurred to me before we started, the people I'm going to be talking to have a soul that will never die. It is going to live on forever somewhere, heaven or hell. Every one of these people are going to heaven or hell. And God could use me if he chose to bring a word of life that could transform their very existence. I mean, think of the gravity of that. Every day we have opportunities to make eternal differences in people's lives. It's not a light thing. It's, it gives seriousness and weight to living out every day of the Christian life. And so let's look for those opportunities and let's grab them. Now that's the second reason. Don't complain, don't argue, not only for your sake, but also for the sake of a lost world. Because they're looking at you. And you're lighting up their black night sky. And they're wondering, what makes that guy different? Why, do, why does he live that way? I kind of like it. I want to find out more about that person. But thirdly, for the sake of your spiritual leaders, because he says in verse 16, so that, here's another so that, in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Don't argue, don't complain, live out this holy life so that in the day of Christ, that's when Christ returns, on the day of judgment, I'm going to have reason to glory or to rejoice, to exult, because I'll know that I didn't run in vain and I didn't toil in vain. I didn't spend my 40 years as a Christian pouring out my life for the salvation of people and the building up of the church, and it was all a waste. He says, if you will live out what I'm telling you to, it's going to prove to me that you are real and that God did use me and that there was real fruit in my life. And when I stand before the judge of all the earth on that final day, I'm going to be rejoicing because I'm going to see those that the Lord has allowed me to bring to Christ. And it's going to fill me with joy and I'm going to glory in that day. But did you notice? This is a strange idea. Live a holy life, not just for yourself and not just for the world, but do it for your spiritual leaders. Have you ever, ever even thought about that concept before? I confess, I don't think I've given it two, two seconds thought. And I've been a Christian a long time. 1979 to 2021, 42 years. Paul said, I was the one that God used to bring you to Christ, to plant this church, would you, would you do what I'm asking you to do just to encourage my heart? Because if you do that, I, I'm going to be glorying in the day of judgment. And I, I know that Pastor Jerome would say the same thing I'm going to say to you this morning. The most encouraging thing for me is when I see actual change happening in people's lives because we've taught the word and you've taken it seriously and you put it into practice in your life. When somebody does that, there's nothing else that can beat that. That is so happifying to me. I go, whoa, that is so cool. Look at the change that God made in that person's life. It brings me to tears sometimes to think that the Lord would use a frail, sinful, weak person like us to effect real spiritual change in somebody else. But that's what he's saying. Encourage our hearts by live out, living out this life of holiness and sanctification. You're going to encourage your spiritual leaders and give something that they can glory in because they know that they didn't waste their life. You are genuine fruit of what, you, of what God did in your life. In 3 John 4, John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. There's no greater joy to a spiritual leader than to know that. No greater joy. That's why when someone leaves the bridge and they go someplace else and I hear that they're still serving the Lord, I'm happy. That just thrills me. Just recently, Debbie and I had a conversation with somebody that I saw come to Christ. It must have been like 1992 maybe. And what's that? Eight and 20, 29 years later, He's still serving the Lord. His children are serving the Lord. 
He has four children. One of them wants to be a pastor. And I think, this is, this is amazing. This is so cool to see. This was a genuine work. I, I wasn't running in vain. I didn't toil in vain. This is real fruit. This lasted 29 years. And it just fills me with joy to see that. And so, folks, encourage your spiritual leaders by living out the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it'll do much to encourage us. So brothers and sisters, God has called you and I to stand out from the world in which we live. He wants us to shine like the moon and the stars on a dark night. He wants the world to stand up and take notice when they watch our lives. How are we going to do that? By not being like them when it comes to complaining and arguing. Would you make a resolve this morning that by the grace of God I'm not going to complain anymore? Now you probably, we will probably fail. No one's perfect at this. But it starts with a resolve to realize that's sin. God doesn't like it. In fact, God hates that. God hated it so much he killed 14,000 people over it. And if God hates it, I need to hate it. And so by the grace of God, I am going to move in this direction, away from a life of complaining, and I'm going to move towards a life of contentment and joy in the midst of trial and tribulation, looking to the Lord to be my strength and my all in all. We need to accept joyfully the trials that come in our life, seeking our contentment in Christ for our sake, for the sake of a lost world, and for the sake of our spiritual leaders. That's Paul's message here. Lord, we ask for your help in putting to death the deeds, the sinful deeds of the body. One of them is complaining, it's grumbling, and another is disputing and arguing. We pray, Lord, that the bridge would be noted for having a spirit there where people are seeking to lay down their selfishness and their pride. And it would be noted for a place, Lord, where we're not arguing with each other and arguing with our God, and we're not complaining and, 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 and arguing against each other, but that we're seeking to dwell together in unity and peace. Help us, Lord, to obey your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.